So, everyone, here we are. Um, I think all of you know I'm leaving, I'm getting out of town, fast and alone tomorrow morning. And uh, I won't be back <laughs> until uh, the... I, I, I return on the 19th, but not until midnight. So I don't think we'll have a class on the 20th. I think it'll be a week after that before we resume. Okay? So, anyone have any questions or comments from what we did last week? All right. We are now on number 33. And some of the monks at Mount Washington once sent a petition to Master, to the Master, requesting a change in their diet. They asked that their food be more scientific. They submitted their demand, unfortunately, in a spirit of self-righteousness. It must be admitted that the diet could have been improved. It was excessively starchy and emphasized heavily such foods as macaroni and cheese. I don't know what such foods as macaroni and cheese are. I was curious if the family of foods called macaroni and cheese. (laughs) The master's answer, however, was scornful. You have given your lives to God, he said. As devotees, you should not worry about what you eat. Be concerned instead that your love for God be deep enough. Now, this, this one goes on, and he, uh, we, we touch this early, later, so we, we come to it. Um, you know, this is a, a conversation that everybody on the spiritual path has. Seemingly, it's less of an issue now, but it's still there. You, know, you start on the spiritual path, and you try to get become uh, spiritual by purifying your diet. It's not a bad thing, especially if you don't have any mastery over your senses and you're inclined to do things that are not in your own best interest. So it doesn't hurt to discipline ourselves every way that we can. But to, to eat well has nothing to do with whether or not you're close to God. It just means that you eat well and that your physical body may may, not even necessarily will, but may, as a result, be more vital. But you can poison your body uh, much more quickly with wrong mental attitudes than you can with wrong foods. So even if you're eating uh, a pure diet, if, but if you're feeding your body with attitudes that are disharmonious, um, that will create dissonance in your physical system, then in the end it will never work. I'm, one of my absolute favorite stories, which I, some of you have heard, is I, in, in my era of fanatical diets, um, Arnold Earhart's mucusless diet. I'm not really quite sure how mucus became the enemy. I'm not even really, I've never been entirely sure what mucus is in this context. But the mucusless diet was the big, the big hit during my time, and it essentially reduced you to fruit. It's real close to being a fruitarian, but it was intensely fanatical. And the man who propounded it was intensely fanatical. And he had absolutely convinced that not only every ailment, but death itself was caused by mucus. And he was certain that he had conquered death because he conquered mucus. And so he stepped off a curb and was hit by a truck. <laughs> just died, just like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not really happy that he died, but it was so marvelous. Just the whole thing, you know. It's, as Master said to the, um, 
the man he met in Arizona, I think it's in this book, the man said, I cheated the grim reaper three times with carrot juice, meaning that he cured himself. And Master said, when death wants you, my friend, you can bathe in the stuff and you'll still die. <laughs> and that's, it's also important to understand. And this is where it just everything comes back to. It's really all about love. It's all about how much we love God, how selfless we are, how self-forgetful we are, how generous we are in our spirit, how willing we are and able to put aside our own needs and desires and likes and dislikes. And it just isn't a matter of when we last had sugar and how much mucus we have in our body. So Swami said during that period of time, and he refers to it, Master refers to it later, Master was impoverished and was having to support everyone. And they, they did, in fact, have a terrible diet. I think they had um, bad cooks without a lot of imagination and very little money. And so their complaints were completely justified, which is what makes it actually rather interesting. As they were completely justified, but Master would not give any credence to their complaints because the attitude that they brought to it was so much worse than the diet they were eating that he was not going to give them a good diet with an attitude like that. Even the comment, they submitted a petition to Master as if they, as if they were on oppositional sides and they had to present their case and then they had to out, outvote him with large numbers and then explain that they wanted to be more scientific. You know, instead of stopping to ask where, you know, why would, why would he be feeding us like this? And a lot of times um, we all make that mistake. But that, that in itself is a sign. That, But then Master answered them globally. You have given your lives to God, he said. As devotees, you should not worry about what you eat. Be concerned instead that your love for God be deep enough. Pure heart, not a pure stomach, is how Master put it. That's how you get to God. So Master himself uh, suggested proper-etarianism, which he didn't even like to call it vegetarian. He just said proper-etarianism, just so that he would put the whole thing to rest because people have always been the same with this sort of thing. So, be conscious, but don't let this be an excuse for um, unhealthy habits. Health is really the issue here. So, 13.4, the master was at various times either lenient or strict in his training. I love that. Was the master strict or was he lenient? Yes. The master was at various times either lenient or strict in his training. Since the goal of the spiritual life is the perfection of bliss in God, he didn't want us to develop a grim attitude. Always remain in the self, he counseled me one day. Come down as necessary and to eat or talk a little bit, then withdraw into the self again. Now that's pretty strict. Just, you know, eat or talk a little bit and then just go back. What about socializing? What about going to the movies? What about hanging out with your friends? You know, what about all of these things? Just come out of yourself to eat or talk a little and then go back. That was sort of the example that Rajasi set. Swamiji said that Rajasi, as, as Master, as Swami put it, he said he didn't have any small talk. It's, it's just, he, if, he, if he didn't have a real reason to speak, he simply didn't speak. He was just silent. And then Swami said sometimes when he did speak, he would just say, Om Guru, Om Guru. He really was in the self at all times and he just would come down a little in order to relate as necessary and then go back. 
At the same time, I recall asking him when I was new on the path to bless me that I overcome my liking for good food. With an indulgent smile, he replied, there is so little little outwardly that you as a yogi can legitimately enjoy that you might as well enjoy what you eat. Swami, uh, we often have quoted that. Good food, the last legitimate pleasure of the yogi. That's what we say somewhat longingly as we um, order everything on the menu. (laughs) When ecstasy comes, he added, everything goes. What he counseled us to do was ever increasingly to develop inner non-attachment. Be even-minded and cheerful, he would say to us, adding, what comes of itself, let it come. That advice embraced both the happy and the sorrowful, sorrowful experiences of life. Refer every joy and even pleasure back to the joy of the inner self, he said, and let every sorrow remind you that your home is not here in the world of sensory experiences, but in the eternal joy of the soul. Don't worry about the little things, he said also. It is, I believe, clear from the above that what he was um, scolding in those monks' demand for a better diet was their self-righteous attitude more than their request for better food. For him, however, it must have been a consideration also that it was no easy matter to feed, clothe, and house a constantly growing family of monks and nuns. It's a lot in there, isn't there? I love that. Master was alternately strict and lenient. Does he, was he alternately strict and lenient with the same people? Well, he told Swamiji, you know, just come down to eat and talk a little bit and then go, go pull back into the self. I mean, that's really, if you really think about the way that we normally live and if you asked yourself how much of my outward involvement and outward communication is really necessary and how much of it is just a restless self-expressing itself. Now, bear in mind, Swamiji was extremely natural, relaxed, social, chatty, cordial. He, he didn't set an example for us of, of austerity at all. So this uh, idea that one stays in the self can't, is not that one becomes cold. Think of earlier when uh, Swamiji was being very, uh, not very warm to that man who had not kept his appointments, and Master scolded him for being so cold. Where would you all be if I was that cold with you? So we also have to realize that we have to um, take into consideration um, the needs and the comfort levels of others. We can't just sort of always pull back. I know when I used to visit my parents, um, I, we didn't, just didn't have a lot in common. Um, they were fine people. They had their own interests. They were intellectual and interested, but our, our interests just diverged too far by the time I was so engaged in Ananda. It was just not possible for us to, um, we just didn't have a lot in common. It's as simple as that. But I sort of got into the habit of being very withdrawn when I was with them. And, you know, I just sort of go into, I think it was more like a mood than a bov, but anyway, I would just go into it. And then just one day I just realized, you know, this is not pleasing to God and this is not attractive to anybody. This just sort of austere uh, non-involvement. You know, these are my parents. They deserve more from me. And I just suddenly just tried, to, not suddenly, but just tried to have more of a personality and just be in their world and 
chit-chat with them about the things that were of interest to him and them. And it wasn't hard to do. I just had to make the decision that that was the appropriate thing for me to do. And it wasn't, there was nothing in it for me. It wasn't like I needed them to be interested. I just needed to give instead of thinking all the time about being so self-protective. So that's also, that's you know, Swami's reality was that he was always giving. He didn't really need um, company or conversation, but we did. And Master was the same, although sometimes he made his disciples be very quiet around him. But he was also just very outgoing. Where would you all be if I were so cold to you? But what you have to watch in yourself is just a restlessness where the energy, where there's no reason at all for the energy to be coming out. It's just, you just can't, can't stop it from coming out. It's that, it's that losing, losing your center. Because if, if you stay in the self, you can even be very outgoing but it's quite a different energy than when you've just moved. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know why you're saying it. But you're just dissipating your energy in all directions. I met a woman once. She was either a banker or a realtor. I believe she's the only person I ever met. I don't actually think she had a spine. I don't think she had chakras. <clears throat> I think she had just nothing but an exoskeleton. Is that what you call it? When it an exoskeleton? When it's all on the outside? Really, I, have, I don't think I've ever seen a more restless person. As far as I could tell, she had no point of rest. Just There's a woman who, she doesn't come anymore, but she used to swim where I swim too. And I think maybe that woman was not quite all in order. But she would just talk continuously in a pretty loud voice when she, every time that she wasn't underwater. <laughs> I saw... I saw a mother with a little girl she was taking swimming. The girl was about four. And uh, the girl reminded me of myself. The girl was just full of observations and comments. And she was one too. The only time she wasn't talking was when she was actually underwater. And as soon as she came up from the water, she would tell her mother about her experience of being underwater. (laughs) The mother looked so beleaguered. I took her aside and I said, you know, it's worked out pretty well for me. I think it'll be okay. <laughs> she just was full of life. I mean, she was a child. But this, uh, these adults that I'm talking about, they just never crossed their mind to go back into the self. That's how we need to be thinking about. I mean, that's what our, uh, the point of our meditation, among many other points. I, what I always feel about meditation, why I don't, I don't really know how people can go very many days without meditating, even though most people go their whole lives without meditating, because it never comes to rest. Actually, what a stupid thing for me to say. It comes perfectly to rest, but it goes into subconscious rest. And I don't just mean sleep. It goes into a couple of beers after dinner, after, after work, or especially television. So that's how people stop everything. They stop it, but they don't actually rest. They just go... Um, tamasic, they go down and so then they're, they're not being forced to put out energy and there's a longing for that that's actually that's the delusion of wine you know, wine, money and sexuality, those are the three big delusions and wine isn't just alcohol, it's the longing to get relief by dulling our consciousness and whether or not we have any interest, if we can be complete teetotalers and still be very drawn to that reality because we um, rest by becoming unconscious. 
And that's, that's what we have to watch in ourselves. We have to learn to rest by becoming super conscious, by lifting our energy and finding that kind of a rest. It's a constant battle. And we come to the three gunas in just a minute, and that makes it a little more clear. So, any, other, any questions or thoughts? Master made the comment that in India, all the disciples support the guru. But in America, the guru is expected to support the disciples. And he just talked about, he said, he, when, you know, it, was, it was a constant strength for him to have to always be thinking about money. Swami followed right in his footsteps, constantly having to be thinking about, how can I support this? How can I pay for this? How can I make this happen? Swami said in India, they just, when he went that year in 1935, and he tells the story somewhere, or maybe it's in Swami's biography of Master's there. You know, this man put a lot, a cute, large sum of money into Master's lap and just said, whatever you want, we'll provide it for you if you'll just stay here. And the Master thought of all the bills he had to pay, and he'd, you know, just been in, he'd just been sued, and all his money had been taken from him, and, and, just, and then this man just says, we'll give you everything you want, you just sit here. Can you imagine how that, the contrast between those two realities? For Master, he'd been uh, vilified in the press, his own disciples had sued him, one of the, one lawsuit against him was successful, the second one, Master saw it coming and prepared himself wisely and didn't, uh, didn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't defeated. But still, all the bills were due, and the disciples, people were coming and going and complaining about the food. <laughs> but you see how easily the mind would just get in there? Well, after all, we're living here, the diet isn't very good, we need to talk to Master. And also, what it's saying about Master, that he doesn't know, that he doesn't care, that he could do better, but he doesn't care about them enough to do any better. You know, we, you get into these things, no wonder Master didn't respond. Love God, was his answer, and eat the macaroni and cheese. <laughs> I can just imagine, though, it must have been horrid. Can you imagine, you know, just going out and getting the cheapest stuff? It's not in this book, but here's just an interesting, by the way, about both Master's creativity. I read this in some notes that an SRF member had from uh, one of the monks there. Master in the Depression, and when the Depression was hit, he was just struggling to pay his bills, and he was trying to think, you know, how he's going to be able to feed all the people and how he's going to manage and what a struggle it is even just to buy food. And then it crosses his mind that, of course, everybody is struggling at this point, and that the people who are accustomed to eating meat, because meat is so expensive, they must really be having trouble because they're not going to be able to afford it anymore. And then he had the idea of using wheat gluten and making a meat substitute fundamentally based on gluten. And I know gluten has a bad rap now, but that wasn't the issue at that point. So he created the first um, collection of of meat substitutes that were meat-like. And he did it to make money for Mount Washington. But he did it creatively because he realized that there was a market for this because there were all these other struggling people who couldn't get the taste and the uh, protein that they wanted. He would provide it for them. So he started manufacturing these meat substitutes, um, chicken and, and burgers and things like that. And uh, then he, I guess he had the disciples out selling them. And he made a nice business of it. And then at some point, um, either they simply didn't need it anymore or whatever, but... In Southern California, there's a Seventh-day Adventist uh, 
company called Loma Linda. It's in Loma Linda, California. And they manufacture in cans um, hot dogs and other things that are all vegetarians. The the Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians. And apparently Master gave all his recipes to whoever started that company. And then, then it became a whole business for someone else, but it was his idea to do it in the first place. This was very touching to us because when we were living in the monastery with very little money and no refrigeration, and we you just had to live really, really spare, there was a, there was a canned something. I, it was a vegetarian equivalent of Spam, I guess. No, no, it, because it was the texture. It was just kind of stuff, a little bit like dog food sort of looking, but yummy, really yummy. It was called Natina, not Nutella, but Natina. And, and you could buy one of those little cans and you could keep it for a rainy day because it would keep on your shelf. And whenever anyone would open a can of Natina, it was always a great day for us because <laughs> it was just such a treat. And then it was, it was a Loma Linda product. And it was really, really sweet to realize. But see how creative his mind was? But you see how it also, it was creative in terms of serving others. If I have a need, how can I fulfill my own need by bringing benefit to others? This is Swami's fundamental principle in material success through yogic principles. If you have a need, how can I fulfill it by serving others? When Swamiji, all through his years of having to build Ananda, his thought always was, well, I do need money. How can I spread? How can I serve? What can I do to enhance Master's teachings? He said something um, that in a, a, something I just read, which is, I'm a little on a tangent here, but this, I was going to say this on Sunday, but it, it just, I'd slipped my mind. In, in about, what is it, 2010 or something like that? I think it was around that time, in the last years of his life. He took a trip to Medjugorje. And Medjugorje is in Yugoslavia, whatever is Yugoslavia. These, yeah, there it is. And uh, it, it was the place where, starting in the early 80s, uh, the Virgin Mary started appearing to about six children who were children at that time. And the, the apparitions have continued for years and years, and they're all grown up now. And I think almost, I think she had, had them all marry. I don't think any of them joined a monastery. And some of them are still seeing visions. And uh, so it's a very holy space, and the whole place of Medjugorje was completely changed. Um, and Swami went over with Nandini and Miriam. Nandini had been there before, and she helped arrange. Um, it was, and it was a very meaningful trip for Swami. Nandini managed to arrange for him to meet one of the visionaries. And uh, her name is, it looks like Vika, but I think it's pronounced Vishka, or something slightly different. And... Uh, she was very seldom in that city. She spent most of her time in a different city, but she was there for one day, and she met Swami. And there's a picture of them, and they, they really look like brother and sister. They look so much alike. And Swami was, she's still seeing visions of Mary to this day. And here was the point of it. At some point, I believe, in that conversation with her, Swami said something about, if you could ask Mother if there's anything more I could do for her. The answer came back, um, just love me. Which was in itself very touching, but here was the other part. Swami said, I've done, every, I've done everything I could think of to serve Divine Mother in the world. He said, but I want to know if there's anything more that she thinks I can do. 
And I just thought of that, just a picture. And that is really, I mean, think of how Swami has behaved even just in the last years of his life. He wrote this pamphlet, a short, you know, it's a long pamphlet about Christianity that he didn't put his name on, that was just like trying to argue in favor of a more expansive uh, idea of Christianity. I mean, God knows where it is in the cosmos because at the end we couldn't even keep up with Swami, what he was doing. He wrote a, a novel called Pilgrimage to Guadalupe about some anonymous man who goes out and has conversations with all these different people and discusses all the basic il- delusions that people are related to. He that redoes the novel at the end of Marie Corelli. He does the commentary on Patanjali. He does the revelations of Christ. And then just randomly he does the, the material success course, which then is too long, so he does the Akash course here. I mean, but what he was doing was just exactly what he said. I've done everything I could think of that I might be able to do for Divine Mother. And he, just, he didn't have any um, barriers as he said to me once when I was struggling to write, huh, he said, I've never had writer's block. I just, there's no, there's no self-concern. If he feels, you know, let's take photographs and put them into a slideshow, let's write a song that represents this, let's do something about putting people more in tune with nature, you know, let's find a way to express these teachings that doesn't even mention the word God that will maybe get these people over here, let's go to the Christian churches. Everything he could think of to do for Divine Mother. Is there, and then he says, is there anything more that I could do that I may not have thought of? And what a way to live. Think how different that is from us. You know, who are, who, who are generous, all of us, and giving what we can, but how, how much of our lives uh, is not oriented that way. And not that we need to feel ashamed at all, but that we really need to um, realize how high the mountain is and aspire to climb toward that. So when these people are complaining about macaroni and cheese, you know, you have given your lives to God. So think about that. That's what you need to think about. And so this is what I was saying, is that here's Master, he's doing everything he can, and they're, they write a petition asking them to give him be- them better food. It's, it's, it wasn't, just wasn't the right way to solve the problem. The way to solve it would be say, well, Master, I have an idea for how we can generate more income. I'm willing to plant some radishes out here. Maybe we could, you know, barter the roses for... I just, you come up with some answer, because if it is an issue, then let's see if we can solve it, instead of uh, starting a petition and making a demand. Very different. Swami was talking about leadership in something that I was reading, too, and he said, a keen intellect is helpful in a leader. He said, but far more important is a good heart. And he talked about a particular man at Ananda who, who did, uh, didn't last very long, such and so a person. He says, he's very confused, he said, because he's a very intelligent man, but he can't figure out why he can't get any position here. He said, because he doesn't have a pure heart. He's not thinking about his leadership properly. And Swami so just sort of, you know, just gently said, he's very confused because he, he couldn't see it. He couldn't understand why he wasn't being asked, whereas, because by any measurement that he was used to, he was quite competent. But when you're in a spiritual world, it's a wholly different story. Very interesting. Any questions or comments on that? All right. Number 35. A visitor to Mount Washington's estates, the master told us, 
once inquired of me superciliously, what are the assets of this organization? None, I promptly replied. Only God. Divine Mother once told me, those to whom I give too much, I do not give myself. Oh my, my. Money, intoxicants, um, sexuality, those are the great uh, temptations, aren't they? It's so interesting because money as a sense of security is... uh, it's really difficult to shake that thought. And, you know, in the present context in which we all live, we're, we're, we're not, it's not given to us to live in a passive environment. You know, there were times in religious history where you just step behind the convent wall and you, well, you didn't have to think about it again. Although you know, there, were, there are many stories of these deeply impoverished convents and I can just see, I can see us, that's the word I was going to use, you know, in these, in these cloistered convents where they, you know, uh, make lace and then put their lace out on the little turnstile and then people come by and they buy their lace and leave coins or chickens or eggs or whatever. And then, I mean, you know, just really um, day by day. So it's not as if merely going into such an environment immediately relieves you of this responsibility. And Swamiji writes in his, I believe it's in the Renunciate Order for a New Age, and also, it's, I think it's in Sadhu Beware also, but it's definitely in the Renunciate Order. He talks a lot about what a sannyasi's, what, what a healthy relationship with money is for a renunciate. And he actually speaks against the traditional system where you just step in and then you're taken care of for the rest of your life. He says just too often he sees it cultivates in people a certain passivity and a certain lack of creativity. And he he talks at great length about the the beneficial effects of having to be responsible for yourself uh, on a financial level and the beneficial relationship it puts you in with your own energy to be able to have to measure your energy in a practical way. At the same time, it's tiresome. And from the point of view of spirituality, often it feels like a terrible distraction. Um, And many people, Ananda has a few, uh, Ananda does not tend to operate in the sphere of people who are wealthy as a group. We have have well-to-do people, we have many many people with good success karma who do do well in the world, but we're not a church uh, where, oh, all the best people come. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just doesn't happen for us. Those to whom I give too much, I don't give myself. I, I put it this way. If the world is really working for you, you don't tend to think about renouncing it. And so it's, it's like we do get people who are capable in the world, but if you're just relishing, exuberant, that was the word that we had earlier on in this course. If you're exuberant in the rising waves then you tend not to be thinking about getting down into the ocean depths. However, even as we behave responsibly, and this is why I went on this tangent, you know, Swamiji wrote both the Material Success Course through Yogic Principles and the Akash Course, which is kind of a condensation of it, and the, the book Money Magnetism and quite a few other things, so he didn't um, dismiss it. 
And he reprimanded us on many occasions for being mm, insufficiently magnetic in, in success terms. And he often uh, chided us for not appreciating what he was actually doing a lot of the time. You just think, what was I, how was I wanting to say that? Um, I know he's, this is what he said once. He said, I know when I say that 200 people are going to come to Spiritual Renewal Week that you all laugh at me. He said, because 35, in fact, are going to come. But if I didn't assert that 200 were going to come, even those 35 wouldn't come. <laughs> you know, just meaning that we were always using our magnetism to pull down when he was trying to use his magnetism to pull up because we just didn't understand how it flows. And learning how to operate those laws are very important. But in the end, you know, you just, it's, it's all karma and it's all the grace of God and it's all dependent on what your attunement is. I had the funniest moment in time and I don't know what I was thinking of. But somehow I, I don't know what lifetime I was clicking into or I started becoming just quite anxious about you know, where, if you have money, what's safe? You know, what do you, what do you, where do you put money? Do you stock market or bonds or this, all those different things. And I just suddenly had this huge desire to have a room full of gold. <laughs> and there's a little closet under our stairs. And just in this kind of like semi-delirium, I just wanted to be able to open that door and see it filled with gold, you know, and just sort of to be able to go sit in there and just see all that gold. And, and then there was this like weird feeling that then I would be secure. I mean, it was like such an exaggerated picture of that money would make me security if I could actually hold it in my hands. And I had pictured myself shutting the closet door so I could be alone with all that. (laughs) But that is, in effect, how people behave, isn't it? And it's really true. And one of the reasons, and I'll just use this little opportunity, why we're always encouraging people to tithe and not merely to donate is because tithing is the most effective way that I know of to really get into that money equals security concept. And I'll give you the definition between tithing and donating. If I sound world-weary in doing this, it's because I have explained this so many times and I have, for some reason, people have a hard time getting this. Okay. When you donate, you say, oh, I have some extra money. It's my money and I have a little extra. I have everything else that I want, so I have a little extra. So I'll give it to this project, which is great. I mean, we're, we're about to launch some new campaigns. I love donating. Donating is like fabulous. Okay. Tithing says that my security does not come from my paycheck. My security comes because I am in right relationship to God, and he's taking care of me. He's giving me a job. He's feeding me. That, and, and that I know that where my capabilities come from, my talent, my intelligence, my opportunities. It's all God-given. And so I have, I have a certain obligation that some of everything I earn needs to be given back. And the tradition is 10%. That's what tithe means is one in 10. And so we give 10% of whatever comes in. And it's not a question of I have extra of my money, so I'll be generous and donate it. It's that I wouldn't have any money at all except that God has made, given me this opportunity. And the, the tradition has always been that therefore 10% of it is given back to the source of your inspiration. And you can define that any way you want. This is 
not really a campaign to tithe to Ananda. However, if everybody who participated in Ananda tithed to Ananda, things would be very, very different. If everybody who really used Ananda as their source of inspiration actually put 10% of their income in, you know, then it would just be a, a marvelous, abundant flow on both sides, I'm sure of it. Because it would, and then people are always asking me, how can I feel God's presence more in my life? How can I trust God more? How can I surrender? I said, well, you could tithe 10% of your income. How could I trust God more? How could I, you know, and it's just like, whoo, goes right by. But why are we so nervous about that one? Because it's so darn tangible, isn't it? And the fun of it is, you see, because it's a percentage, if you're very, very broke, if you have $1, you give 10 cents. If you have $100,000, you give $10,000. And it's just, it's in proportion. It's always in proportion. And every time you do it, it's a conscious act. You know, that thank you, Lord. We made our little tithing envelopes and they say, thank you, God, on them. We made a, little, a checkbook register when people used to use check registers that said, thank you, God, on it. We thought that would be such a bestseller. It really, like that went nowhere. <laughs> we just had piles and piles of them. We probably just threw them away at some point. We thought everyone would want one of those. Wouldn't that just be great? What an affirmation. But it just, there's a strange disconnect. And in fact, it's frowned upon in churches to talk too much about money. But I don't agree with that. And I think money is so fundamental to people's self-concept, security, everything that I think it's just right in the center of it. And give it to whoever you want, but just give it to whoever you feel inspired. A lot of people, when Swami was living, people often tithed directly to Swami. They just felt that was, that's how they felt they could do it. They felt he'd inspired them, and they gave it right back to him. He's not here right now, so it's harder. You can tithe directly to Jyotish. You can tithe directly to a person if you want to, because it's not about where it goes. It's about your having the feeling... And, the, and you don't choose. You don't say, oh, this is for the new school, this is for the um, new windows, you know, this is for fixing the roof. That's donating. Tithing just says, this isn't mine. If, if you go into the store and they give you 10% extra, you don't just say, wow, look at this. You just say, well, this isn't mine. I have to give this back. And that's how you think about it. You know, 90% belongs to me, 10% belongs to God. A very, very famous, very wealthy man used to give 90% to God. 10% for himself. But he worked up to that by being so rich. But he said every time, he said, Why? we're partners, that's how I have it. Okay, how's that? I don't mean to be so defeatist, I should have more, I should have more magnetism on the issue. <laughs> yes, Sharmila, um, can you take the microphone. I really should be quite cheerful and quite convinced. I'm just, I'm just surprised how infrequently people will actually take that as a solution. And I shouldn't be, because I've been in this for a very long time. And many, many people that I love and admire enormously, there's still there's some peace there. There's a fear element, whatever it might be. And it's too real for me to disregard, and it's too important to people for me to make fun of. But I wish that more people could. I'll tell you one more thing. When we first started tithing at Ananda, um, you know, we started doing the 10%. It was in the 70s. And just after we all started tithing, Swamiji took a small group of us down to Carmel, which he would do every so often. Every so often he would just, you know, 
bust the bank as far as we were concerned. He, we'd, we'd get in the car, we'd go to Carmel, we'd stay in a, a motel somewhere, we'd go out to dinner. I earned literally $50 a month, which Swami was paying me. I was working directly. He would pull, pull out his wallet and he would hand me the money. And that was all the money that I had. Periodically, my parents would send me $100 or something. But really, literally, that's what I had. We'd go out to dinner somewhere and, you know, just some incredibly expensive dinner, like $20, which in the 70s was a lot. That was a high percentage of the whole month. And so I mean, would just push us all right through it. And you couldn't even order small because we, he always insisted on dividing the bill equally. He would never let you calculate, well, I only had half a sandwich and then that small bowl of soup. It was just whoever was at the table and he would just order whatever he wanted and then it would all get divided evenly. So you, you could never do that. And it always worked, always, absolutely, every single time. And we were tithing at that point. We'd started and we all said to each other, you know, we don't dare stop tithing now because <laughs> we got to keep the flow going. <laughs> because the first thing you think of is, because I've been so extravagant, I can't afford to tithe. But actually, exactly the opposite is there. Because I've had to, I've had to, and, and you know, you would think taking a trip to Carmel from Ananda village was an extravagance, but if Swami took you, you went. And you just figured the money was there somehow. I, I really don't know how it worked. But it always worked. But it was like, yeah, we better keep tithing because we've pushed ourselves way out beyond our, uh, dollars and cents. We've just got to get into wherever we're going and stay there because nothing's going to save us. No reason is going to save us on this one. Yes? I don't know that I have an actual question. I guess I just wanted to say that this is, for me, such a profound subject, both the part about not giving too much to others because of of losing oneself, or how it's not the exact quote, but that whole thing about knowing, you know, that people need to take responsibility and at the same time we need to serve and to give. But then that other piece about um, what is enough, what do you hold on to because I do need to be responsible to some degree for myself um, and for growing older and for living here and then. You know, to hear a story about having pretty much nothing materially as the early, all of you early had. Um, it's just, it's hard to, to wrap my mind around it sometimes here. Well, I completely agree Living with you. here. And the other thing mm-hmm. I wanted to say was that about tithing is that it's very easy to to make that easy so that you begin to lose contact with the actual giving of what you've gotten. In other words, I've, you know, I've, for a long time I've tithed based on what seems to be pretty generally my income for the month, which varies a good bit. But I notice that so when I do that on an automatic la- basis, I, I lose touch with that whole yeah, that whole po- that whole process. Well, some people who do tithe by t- say they tithe to Ananda by giving us a credit card, and it just every month a certain amount is taken out. So you have to figure out a way to just make that more real to yourself. You have to decide whether you want to start writing checks or doing it in cash or however you want to deal with it, because you, one should keep it conscious. Or one or um, a great uh, prosperity teacher said, if you're not frightened when you tithe, you should be tithing more. 
<laughs> I don't go that far. But yes, I, and, but see, this is, where, this is where Swamiji was saying, that's why even renunciates should be financially responsible for themselves on some level, because you have to develop your intuition. Because to just be guilty and compulsive is not to be spiritually guided. And so if you're just being compulsive and, and ashamed of having any resources and just kind of wildly using your money, just trying to empty your pocketbooks, I mean, there's, it's in, there's interesting studies of people who win the lottery and how many of the people who live, live the, win the lottery within two years, which is two years or five years, are exactly back where they started. And, I, and there was a, a man I knew who inherited, and he herod, inherited, maybe it was in the realm of a couple of hundred thousand, I mean, money that's substantial money, but, you know, not breathtaking money in, in this day and age. And in a matter of a couple of years, he'd spent it all. And he was just impoverished again. And he'd always been impoverished, and it was enough money, if he'd used it wisely, that he could have changed his karma. But he said afterwards, he said, if it had been five million, I would have spent it all. It was just a compulsion to, to, to be irresponsible. So it's just, it's just a matter of intuition. You just have to find what's true for you and hold comfortably, and nobody can sort that out for you. Once again, that's why tithing cuts through a lot of that, because then you, at least you have that taken care of. Then after that, you can ask yourself, what more is needed? What do I feel safe? What do I feel inspired to do? And everything is about intuition. No, there's no rules after that. Tithing, for some reason, has been a rule. It's in the Old Testament. It's not even Jesus. You know, we think it's about Jesus, but Jesus just assumed that's what they were doing. It actually comes from Moses. It wasn't one of the ten, but maybe it was eleven or twelve or thirteen, because it's right in there. He explains how you hold up the staff and, and the sheep go under the, the staff and the nine sheep go through and then the ten sheep goes over here for the temple and then you send another nine through and then you take one like that. So if you have sheep... <laughs> But that's where it comes from. Okay, any other comments or questions? You know, this path is marvelous because there's very few rules. Almost all of it, you have to figure out for yourself. Good luck. Is there a question on this side? Nope, I was, but not for that reason. Okay, we're going to take a break. There were two uh, thoughts raised during the break about tithing and then we can let the subject go. One was, the concept of tithing, what's so powerful about it is a percentage. So a lot of people start with less than 10. Makes them feel more secure. One, two, three, work up slowly. But the relationship, the, the mental relationship, that this isn't my money, is, and that we always give a percentage, is what really helps. I wish children were trained this way. Um, and the other was, you know, even though Sharmila spoke of wanting to keep tithing as a conscious practice, some others of us love the fact that we, it's always happening. We don't have to think about it all the time. <laughs> that it's just that you know, it's 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 either credit card deduction or an automatic payroll uh, withholding or whatever it is. It's just gone. This is what I get because some of uh, else is going elsewhere, and so it's really very individual. You just you want to just be able to say. What are the assets of this organization? None, only God. You know, just that's, that's just to be able to feel in your heart that even if there's a lot of money in the bank and, you know, I can go wherever I want and do whatever I want, that's not really what makes me feel safe. 
Because see, that's really the, the question. And that's really what we're trying to get to. It's not really about money. It's what makes me feel safe. Why do I feel safe? What makes me feel secure? In, when I move through this world, what am I afraid of? What am I not afraid of? Where, where does my security come from? This is the obvious question. Security is a fundamental um, element of mental and spiritual health. It's the quality of the first chakra. And so it's not... The quality of the first chakra is a very important fundamental quality. We have to be in balance in all of those chakras. And chakra is the earth element. And its, pos- its positive expression is that our security comes from the first chakra. It has to be well-rooted. I mean, you know, earth, however you want to say it. So the question is not, do I need to feel secure? The question is, where do I get my security? And that's the issue. And the, the, the security that we're looking for is that we are firmly rooted in truth. And we are firmly rooted in the belief that we are children of God. And if we live according to Dharma, you know, we, we are in harmony. And that security is not that nothing bad will ever happen to me. That security is that what comes of itself, let it come. Isn't that what Swami said in here? Where was it that he said that? You know, whatever comes of itself, let it come. Everything. That's my security. It's not that I trust anything in this world. But if we find ourselves thinking, well, if I can just get this IRA up to this certain amount, if I can just get this salary up to this certain amount, if I can just... And, and no harm, be practical. Swami was very, very practical and very specific and very attentive. He did not just casually let things go. In fact, he used to annoy people who thought it was more spiritual to be kind of airheaded about these things. He was very grounded. And he always knew exactly where he stood financially and just exactly what was going on. He never did careless or foolish things. But when he felt inspired to move, he always moved because what are the assets? What are my personal assets? None. doesn't matter if I have money in the bank or not. My asset is that I'm a disciple of a great master and I'm doing my best to live by him, by his rules. When I, my rules of prosperity, which were Change have changed slightly. My circumstances have changed slightly, but my principles are still the same. When I had no money at all, like you know, like going off with Swamiji as we often would, sometimes would, if it was spiritually right to do it, I did it. And I figured whatever the financial cost, it would just work. And at a certain point, after my father died and had money, some money in the bank, it was my Swami Kriyananda travel fund. And I kept it there so that whenever he called and said, would you like to come, there would be no question. There wouldn't, I wouldn't have to stop and figure it out. And I was hoping it would outlast him. And it, it did. I, was, I would rather he had lasted longer. But it was just, you know, when I had it there, I kept enough so that, you want to come to Goa for two weeks? We're on our way. Do you want to go to Rome tomorrow? Or here's a ticket. So, and it just, that seemed righteous to me. And I never thought about extravagance or anything. And when it was go to Carmel and spend $20, same, same deal. If it was spiritually right to do, then I would do it, then it would be fine. And so that's, that's where you monitor it from. You don't monitor it from the counting. You monitor it, what is it that I desire? What am I trying to spend it on? But Swamiji was also relaxed. And, uh, you know, if you come to our house, you uh, see uh, Chela Bhavan, there's the, over the, dining room table, there's the chandelier with the 
little prison balls in it. The first time Swami came to see that house after he'd moved into it, he's, he liked the whole house, and, but there was this brass sort of old-fashioned thing there. He said, but that is really, that's not suitable. He said, you need a chandelier. Chandelier is a word that I don't think I'd ever said. What to speak of putting together, I need a chandelier. It's like, I, I need a chandelier, like I need a hole in the head, is how I felt about it. It's like, what? He says, yes, and you need a chandelier. Swamiji was not very well at that time. He couldn't walk all that much, and he'd just come back from a long trip. And he said, we're going to go get a chandelier. And, you know, David and I had it. Like, Swami wants us to buy it, we'll buy it. The big television that we have, was we, that was the second big television that Swami announced that we needed. <laughs> we just went and got it. And... Uh, so we needed a chandelier, so we got it. We put him in a wheelchair. We, I look up chandelier stores, and there happens to be one just in Los Altos. So we drive to Los Altos and get Swami out of the car and put him in a wheelchair. And we, we push him through the chandelier store, which happens to be a very nice little store there. We're looking, you know, I'm just looking at these things, you know, wondering what on earth am I going to end up with walking next to him. It was, it was almost my 60th birthday. He, and then somewhere along the line, he said, I'm going to buy this for you for your... 60th birthday. And it wasn't really the spending of the money, even. Although it was, I mean, naturally I was deeply touched. It was just the idea of having, that I need a chandelier. <laughs> so we just went from end to end of that store, and then he saw that one. And of course, I, I loved it, because it was, it's not, you know, it's those prism balls. It just, it looks a little bit like a disco club thing. You know, it's just, it was great. It was perfect. And Swami's very intuitive as a shopper. We just walked back and forth and nothing caught our eye and then that, that was it. So we just bought it in Dambara, hung it up on the ceiling. But it was just like, what, I don't know what was moving him to think that we needed a chandelier, but it, it just seemed important to him to do that. But I would have bought it myself. if he. And you know, those things are not cheap, but I was totally ready to buy it myself if he said, I needed one, I needed one. And of course, I have complete trust in him. That's not a situation that arises for most of us, but there are other situations where it's just, this is dharma, I need to do it. And that's, that's how, to my mind, that's the rule of prosperity. This is dharma, I need to do it. And then sometimes it's dharma, you know, I'm on my way to the Holy Land to take a pilgrimage there, and I have been feeling for many months that I should go on this trip to Jerusalem. I have always wanted to go. And I was playing out this scenario for a number of years, we used to lead pilgrimages to India. And with all due respect, these are not inexpensive trips. And people would be so worried about the money. Because, of course, it was real money. And I would always say, I promise you, if you take this trip, you will never again think about the money. You will just be so glad that you went. You will never, never think, oh, that wasn't worth it, ever. And I, I think of the 150 or more people were... 200 people here, no one, everyone always agreed. I'm there myself thinking, oh, this is so much money. It's really a lot of money. I kept thinking for months it was a lot of money. And finally I heard myself. And I heard all the advice I'd given to everyone else. You feel drawn to go on pilgrimage. If it's in the bank, write the check. And by the grace of God, the Swami Travel Fund, it was still in the bank, so I wrote the check. But you know, it's just like, if it's spiritually right, and as I was saying about that, it, that includes you. Your spiritual enlightenment, your spiritual well-being. And if that includes, 
you know, it's not so you don't have to live always on the edge of disaster. Um, Diana in India, who's been living in India for 10 years, every Monday she goes off to a, a, a nice place, usually has a spa treatment of some kind. She's lived it successfully as an American in India for 10 years. She's almost the only, or perhaps the only, long-term Ananda American resident who's never been in the hospital. And one of the reasons she's able to is because from the very beginning she said, you know, this is not my natural environment and I just need to pay attention. And so it looked a little extravagant. Some people thought it was extravagant, but she just she saw the picture. She was part of the whole picture. I'm on a long rhythm here and I need to do what I need to do in order to keep myself going. So we have to, that's where you have to play your own edge. If, if it's too much, it's not pleasing to God. It just becomes the wrong kind of renunciation. It has to be just right there. And that has to do with how secure you feel and I should be able to feel okay if. If you can't, you have to be honest about it. Yes, Krista. Share a tithing um, story. I was, used to go to a religious science church mm-hmm. and they're big on tithing. And we had a guest speaker, and she was talking about tithing, and I thought, okay, I want to try this as a leap of faith, but I had no business doing a full 10% because I worked for a nonprofit at the time when there were no jobs after the dot-com boom. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And um, I started doing it, and then I got a, a new job that paid many times my current salary. And so I, I know that it's not like... The expectation isn't always money to get to receive more money, mm-hmm. but that was one aspect. The other aspects were spiritual growth. But I, um, I, I definitely say that that leap of faith made a difference in my life when I was going into debt, yeah, and really you know helped me tremendously. Um, there's so many stories of how tithing results in prosperity. It's just there's just too many to refute. And, it, and they're very inspiring, I think, all of them. People would just tell stories exactly like yours. I couldn't afford it, so I kept doing it. And then that's why I was saying when we were just being stretched to the limit by Swami, we, we dare not stop now. The only thing that's going to save us. We, we used to have little buttons for a cycle of time. It was, it was the 10% solution. <laughs> People would wear a little, I'm part of the 10% solution, we'd say. <laughs> All right, anything else? I think that was a fair discussion on what are the assets of this organization. Okay, number 36. 1949 saw a worldwide stir of recent sightings of flying saucers or UFOs, unidentified flying objects. The newspapers generally made light of the reports, but Paramahansa Yogananda's brief comment was, what people have seen is true. These phenomena are not imaginary. About interplanetary travel, he once said, modern man thinks that everything must be uh, accomplished by physical force. There are many subtler forces in nature. These will come to light as the general sensitivity of man becomes more refined. Someday it will be a simple matter to travel from Earth to Mars or to other planets. If man can progress from the bullet cart method of traveling to flying at hundreds of miles an hour, it will be easy for him in future to find ways of locomotion that will take him like electricity from planet to planet. Don't you love it when he just throws in stuff like that? You know, I just, 
We're so narrow in our thinking. Uh, I mean, we as devotees perhaps are a little bit bigger, but mankind, we're just so small. It's so fun also because, you know, people go back and forth. Is it true? Are there really UFOs? Are there? And then Master says, yes. <laughs> you know, just with that emphatic. And it, as Swami said about what he heard from Master, he always accepted it, how did he put it? Wholeheartedly or with faith, but he said never unquestioningly. So, you know, you can ask questions about it. Uh, you don't have to just be a sponge and just say, if he says it's so, it must be so. But just the matter-of-fact way that Master states this, that we're just too narrow in our thinking. Really, it seems to me it doesn't take any imagination now, because anybody's been alive, anybody's older than 10, or I would say maybe older than 15, has seen so many changes in our own lifetime that are just, each one is a complete revolution. And to imagine that we're anywhere near the end of the possibilities of that just seems, it's always seemed naive to me. One of my, you know, my early complete disinfatuation with education, formal education, was in the fifth grade when Mrs. Pugh said, I've always admired Mrs. Pugh for having the nerve to be an elementary school teacher with a name like that. Can you imagine? (laughs) Unfortunately, she was a little like that. But uh, she at least spelled it P-U-G-H. I've always remembered this. I remember very little of my education. It mostly just went in and out. But Mrs. Pugh said, in order for their life to exist on other planets, these are the conditions that must be fulfilled. And she said, I don't even remember, water, air. She just laid out, you know, they, there was a, some, like, whatever the core curriculum was at that time. I said, Mrs. Pugh? Couldn't there be a form of life that was based on some other things? No, she said. <laughs> I just looked through it. I was just a kid, and I thought, you don't know what you're talking about. And this is just like, that is the stupidest answer I ever heard. But it just wasn't part of her system. I just thought, these people, what am I doing here? Get me out of here. <laughs> so Master just cuts through it. Of course, we're going to go to other planets. And then he just throws in, we think it has to be accomplished by physical force, but there's other forms of locomotion. The, uh, I've often commented that even now, or maybe it's changed by now, but engines used to, power of engines used to be measured in horsepower. I mean, think about that word. How could you even begin to measure how powerful this weird, steaming, odd metal object is? Well, it got the power of four horses. So it became a four-horsepower engine. And that was actually the measurement, but that was just to get people away from the fact that if it's not a horse, it can't really do anything. And now we don't even, we can't even relate to that, but people stood right at that transition. And right now, the whole effort to go to outer space has been distracted by other things. We've been distracted from it by other things, but it's still out there and it'll still happen. And the souls are being born who's the old Atlanteans and whoever they are who remember how to do it, they're just going to come together and remember how to do it again. <coughs> I visited NASA many years ago, 30 years ago, NASA Center in Houston. And it was so interesting to me because as soon as I stepped onto that big campus, I could feel that this was another karmic group, just like Ananda. That like this was a group of souls who had all, it was at the height of all of that. They'd all come in together to do this. And you could just kind of, you could kind of see them all walking around. And they were all, you could just see they were all connected to each other. 
And they were all super connected to the project. And you could just feel that energy. It's just like, the, just like us. You know, we were at Ananda. We were <laughs> trying to get out of the mud and, you know, put up our teepees and have things work. But we had that same energy. You know, we're all here and we're all doing it together. I'm sure many of the companies in this area that, you know, some of you have worked for have that same thing. They know that they're there to do something and they're all people, karmic souls, connected to make that thing happen. And as Master says, um, these will come to light as the general sensitivity of man becomes more refined. That's the funnest thing you see about all inventions is they're not really invented, they're discovered. And they're always, they've always been sitting there. It's just nobody put the pieces together. And then suddenly it becomes obvious to somebody so uh, Swami said in Romania where his father went to set up the oil refinery there for what was standard oil at that time, he said the oil had been seeping up out of the ground for, you know, for centuries. But nobody ever knew what to do with it. They didn't understand that this was a source of energy. It wasn't until somebody figured that out that what, was, what had just been a, a swamp, a sort of ugly, smelly swamp, suddenly became this huge asset for the country. It was always there. And that, then, you, then you have visionaries like Leonardo da Vinci or others who make plans for flying machines and things that... Or Jules Verne even, who just with imagination and uh, uh, fiction still just sees things that are really there to be seen. But he's, only, he's seeing them with art. He's not the scientist who's making it, but you know, much of what the world he imagined, he was able to imagine it because it was really there. It's very fun when you think about that. It's very important not to get caught in the way things are. In my day, we did this. Even now, Tondava and I were having a humorous exchange. I, I have all these files, all this paper from my years with Swami that I'm using, working with to make this book. And every so often, just recently I was in L.A. and they were really touting to me this incredible scanning system that would enable all this and I just shook my head. I said, I just, I can't understand it when it's on the computer. I use the computer all the time, but I often print things out. I just, if it's just on the screen, I, I, some part of me just doesn't know what to do with it. And so I couldn't turn that paper into files because then I would just have to print them in order to use them. <laughs> and then I had loaned, Tandava had wanted to know about the, this course that Swami taught, the Superconscious Living Course. So I pulled out my file, which was, about four inches of just lots of random different sheets. And I gave it to him, and he kept it for about six months, and Tondava was saying, it just sat in the corner of his room. He didn't know what to do with it. And then finally it occurred to him to scan the whole thing in. <laughs> and now that he's scanned it, he has a useful set of notes. <laughs> We're all just born for different realities, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful to realize that even if... Swamiji was a very interesting blend because he, uh, uh, he never really embraced um, the electronic age, although he used everything that was helpful to him. He got a computer and started writing on it long before anyone did, when it was just this dinosaur of a thing. And he, he often bought, he bought a, a synclavier, which was a, a music writing machine, uh, long before it was worked out to, to use it all. And he would always buy this telephone. Or, it was, he was very interested in what was possible. But himself, he never dedicated himself to it. He never really became adept. But he never 
blocked anything or, or excused himself in such a way that we shouldn't go forward, we shouldn't do it. He was very attentive not to let himself get, get small. And it's just an incredible temptation. When I first moved to Palo Alto, I'd forgotten this for a long time, I used to love to go to the library as a child, and you remember the, some of you all look at the right ones in the room, the, the, the card catalogs, right, with the little gold brass thing. I, this I remember as a child, you know, pulling out those drawers and thumbing through the cards. It was a, just a marvelous part of going to the library. So I come here from living in the hills, and I really didn't use the library much up where we lived. So I come here, and I go to the library for the first time. Of course, there's no card catalog this was even in 1987. There's no card catalog in Palo Alto. There's a computer. And I just, I used, was already using a computer for many years at that time. Someone gave me one very early. But I just wasn't used to the whole thing. And I went and I sort of made an effort to deal with it and I couldn't deal with it. And I actually walked out and I started to cry. <laughs> I was just crying. I was kind of huddled against the fence and I just felt I wanted to get these books and I couldn't get these books. I was just... <laughs> so pathetic. And then I, I said to myself, Asha, if you don't go back in there and learn to use that thing, you're going to get old starting right now. I mean, that is what happens, isn't it? I'm not going to be able to go to the library anymore. And I walked up and I said, you are six years old. Because the children know how to use these darn things. I said, this is designed for children. And I walked up to it and I pretended that I was six, that I had been born to this world. And of course it was bing, 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 bing like that. And it was no problem at all. But it's a moment. It's really a moment where you just have to turn back, you know, and do it. Did you have something, Nishkan? Uh, whenever I hear of, or I'm reminded of Master's uh, um, statement that don't worry about it, we'll, we'll figure out how to do these things. I always recall that space and time are delusions. Yeah. If you really believe that, and you just use your imagination a little bit, uh, you don't have any worry about it at all. You no. just have to expand your consciousness and you get it. Yeah. Master, um, Swami remarked, it's, it's, there's this comment and others, but Master basically said, they're just looking, in terms of space travel, they're just looking in the wrong way right now. He said, they're, they're, they're just so physically oriented. They, th- what they see as obstacles, you know, time and... Space, he said. They're just. He, he said they're just looking in the wrong way. They're just going to turn in another direction, and it'll be clear. I mean, from the point of view, you have several points of view when you talk about a master. You you start with omniscience, you know, just the capacity to understand everything. You you talk about the um, the illusion of time, and the fact that we are that the yugas are a circular reality, which means that. You, we've been very advanced and we become advanced not only um, spiritually and in other ways, but we become advanced technologically. That's what we're living in right now. This is Dwapar Yuga. And part of Dwapar Yuga is the annihilation of space and time, first, space, first by mechanical means. And so that's what we're dealing with now because I have, in my file, I have these letters from Swamiji when he was in seclusion in Srinagar in 1976, and he wrote on those blue, uh, you know, um, airmail uh, air, air, air forms. And there was all this confusion because 
I didn't have the sense to number my letters, and so letters would cross in the mail, and then one would get lost, and questions would be unanswered. And every once in a great while, he would make one phone call, and, you, and we just, you know, we talk hurriedly for two minutes, sort of shouting into the phone, barely able to understand each other. It was just, that was just it. Now it's just nothing. I, I remember the first time I faxed to Calcutta. It was just so exciting because I'm putting this fax in and I realize it's coming out in Calcutta. You know? And it was in, in a matter of a, a minute or two. I was in communication. It was just thrilling. Now it's just, space is gone and we don't even think about that. It's just, just like that. But all this stuff has happened before. So the masters all just remember it. And when it's time, those souls will just be born again. They're hanging out, or, or else they're on other planets where what's interesting to them is happening. Because people who are really into that sort of thing are really interested in it. So they wouldn't want to hang out here unless it was interesting. So they'll go to a planet where they can use those skills and keep honing them. Or then they'll come back at the right moment. But yoga happened and then they can come here. On earth, right. Yeah. They'll go somewhere else and work on it. There was a doctor that uh, someone was talking to and they were talking about reincarnation. The doctor had never even thought about it. He got really excited in actually a rather sweet way because he loves being a doctor. He says, oh, you mean I'll get to just, you know, I'll get to do it again and get even better? I mean, and that is actually an admirable thing. He's not thinking about others, but imagine a scientist who's, mind is just full of all these possibilities and has just barely began to touch them and if he stayed current and he sees what, what's becoming possible that's why you would reincarnate you're just, you're just right in the middle of, of what's possible or even you're an artist and you've always been frustrated by the, the um, I- impassive nature of paint on canvas and then you begin to see the way people are beginning to make art out of light and you start thinking about what you might be able to do if you could put make art out of light. And you just want to come and try it. And this is how we progress. But this is also determines where we have to be born. Or you're just a Native American and Indian and you just can't bear any of it. So you just go back to some place where you can just camp by the river. <laughs> or, or, in, or you come in Satya Yuga where we're in such harmony with nature that you get to go camp by the river again. <laughs> so, well, I think that's the whole story. So we covered through number 36 from 33 to 36. Okay, now we take a little hiatus and I'll see you all in a month. Thank you. I shall. I fully intend to enjoy myself. I'll come down, I'll come down a little to eat or talk. But. <laughs> I'm going, I'm going to the East Coast for a retreat this weekend that I'm giving, leading. Then I fly, to, I fly to India through Europe. I was going to stop in Europe, but now I'm going to go on to India for a week and visit our friends. Uh, we have friends who are having a little health problem there, so Tushti and Surrender, Tushti's not well. And then I'm going to come back and join the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So I was going to go to Assisi, but it didn't work out.